0: Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, Luke 1 and verse 57. Luke 1, 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is God's word to us. Let's pray together. Father, again, we come to you with thankfulness for your word to us. That we have not been left without a faithful testimony, but you have given us your word to point us, to remind us, to tell the story again and again of your saving grace. And so as we consider your word this morning, would you open the eyes of our hearts? Would you instruct our hearts? Would you convict us of sin? Would you increase our faith? Would you cause us to see wonderful things in your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we've worked our way through Luke, you know, we're looking at the the songs, the the hymns of Advent as Luke records them, and we're going in the order that they come. Uh, But you'll notice that this story really is a sequel. It picks up to the original narrative in the beginning of Luke's gospel where he told us about Zechariah's experience in the temple, where Zechariah had gone in to serve the Lord, and the temple had had a vision of an angel, Gabriel, had visited him. And he heard the promise that he and his elderly wife, they were both in their old age, they who had prayed for a child and never received one, his wife, Baron would be given a son. And Zachariah, like many of us, doubted. <laughs> and the result of his doubting was that he lost his ability to speak for nine months, um, that's where Zechariah is. And now all of that is about to change. It's actually not at his birth, but it's eight days after his birth. It's at the circumcision where his tongue is restored and his voice is given back to him. And the result of this is that Zechariah utters words of doxology, words of praise, a song of praise that is both filled with praise and prophetic in Zechariah's song, we see uh, a common structure. We've talked about this when we were in Genesis. We saw this a little bit. We don't typically get into detail with literary devices and so forth, but I want to just pull back the curtain a little bit and peek at this because I think that it's encouraging to see. It's a, chi- a chiasmus which we have talked about before. It's a, it's a way of writing poetry in which it's inverted. There are parallels that are inverted. And so we start at the beginning and at the end, and we work our way toward the middle. And so we will see this in his song. I just want you to see it briefly. Uh, the references to Scripture are filled in this song. We, we saw in Mary's song there were at least a dozen references to uh, her, her Bible, what we would call our Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Here in Zechariah's song, there are at least 16 references to Scripture. So it's it's Obviously, it's biblical because it's here in God's Word in our, in our New Testament, but it's biblical in the sense that it has the language. It sounds familiar. When we read uh, Zechariah's song, e- even if you noticed, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, I mean, all of that language is in that hymn. In the same way that we recognize the words from Luke 1 when we sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, we recognize words from the Old Testament when we read Luke 1, don't we? They're words that are, are from the prophecies, from the Psalms, uh, words that we find familiar. So, not only is the the the, the, the words, or not only are the words biblical, but the, the the structure is as well. Look at the parallels. If you look in verse sixty-eight, you'll see the word visit, and then look down toward the end in verse seventy-eight, and you see the word visit. In verse sixty-eight, his people, and then in verse seventy-seven the word salvation is in verse 69 and verse 77 you see how we're working from the beginning and the end toward the middle and these words we would consider subthemes or keywords in the song that these would be words of emphasis that the author wants to draw our attention to continuing on the word prophet in verse 70 and 76 enemies in 71 and 74 father in 72 and 73. And then we come to the seventh parallel. Yes, there are seven. Seven is, of course, significant in Hebrew, a number of completeness. At the seventh parallel, which occurs right in the middle of the song, we see two synonyms used, the words covenant and oath. And this is the author's way of drawing our attention to the central theme of the song, that is God's covenant faithfulness. Now, again, we don't typically look at literary stuff when we uh, come together in a sermon, but I think that that's worth appreciating, worth seeing that this song isn't haphazard. It isn't just a string of words, but it is uh, given structure by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It says Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit before he prophesied here. It is given structure and there is beauty in the structure of the song. There's also significance, not just in the beauty, but in pointing us to what the author is, is telling us. And that is God keeps all of his promises. Now, if you attend here regularly, you probably... i See, I see some of you already doing it. You know, I say this all the time, right? Seth has his little pet phrases and they come out all the time, even if they're not in my notes. They're in my prayers. They're in my sermons. God keeps all of his promises. Uh, Surely he will do it. God is faithful. He will do everything that he said. Why does Seth say this over and over again? Well, because Seth needs to hear it over and over again. We doubt. We forget. Especially when we come to adversity in life or struggles or experience injustices and are sinned against, we scratch our heads and we think, God, are you good? Are you able to keep your promises? Will you really do it? Because we look at our circumstances rather than who he is. So the reason this is important, God's covenant faithfulness, is it's 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 the story of redemption. It's the story as we've seen in Genesis that the promises given all the way back in the beginning have come true. And the same God who kept all of his promises then is your saving God now who will keep all of his promises to you. So this is a big deal. It's a big deal because it's who God is. He is faithful. He is immutable. He's unchanging. He will not change. You and I change. You and I are not perfectly dependable. We let one another down. God will never let us down. And so because we so easily forget and so because we so quickly doubt, we need to come back to this again and again and again and hear what the writer of Deuteronomy, Moses, said in Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. This is our faithful God who is true, of whom Zechariah now sings in his song for all that he has done and will do, and he begins his song with the word blessed. This is where we get the name Benedictus. It's the Latin word for blessed, and it's what gives our song its name. Now, if you'll notice the passage, actually, we're backing up a little bit. We're going to look briefly at the narrative that precedes his song. We see in the narrative, we're told that Elizabeth is, gives birth to her son, and in verse 58, that this event is celebrated by the neighbors and the relatives around her in this community. So it's a picture of this rural community where everybody kind of knows what's going on, both in a positive and there's probably a negative uh, connotation to that. You know, there are no secrets in a little town. But it's that picture of community where people come together and celebrate. I grew up in a rural area, and the, the community that we were closest to was called the Birdie Community. And we had a, the Birdie Community Clubhouse. Now, Birdie, was, it, there was no traffic light. There was no business. There wasn't, there wasn't a gas station. There was nothing. It was just a section of the country. And, but this Birdie Community Clubhouse was the one thing that was not someone's home. And once a month, we would gather together at the Birdie Community and have a potluck meal, a shared potluck meal, and kids would play and adults would visit. There was no business. There was nothing going on. It was just shared community. And I mention that because uh, I don't know that we have that as much anymore, do we? Uh, but in rural communities, and especially in years gone by, this was something that was practiced, where people were involved in each other's lives and cared about what was going on. And this is certainly the case that we see here with Elizabeth and Zechariah. But it's also the fulfillment of the prophecy that Gabriel gave to Zachariah in the temple. He said to Zechariah, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth in Luke 1.14. And so here we see a fulfillment of those words. Well, on the eighth day, the community in keeping with tradition comes back around for the celebration and the witness of the circumcision. This is the sign of the covenant, and it was to be given in faith, uh, trusting in the God who had originally given the sign to Abraham. And so now Zechariah and Elizabeth were in faith, trusting God and bring their son before him and with the community to witness it. But think for a moment what Zachariah must have felt like. His voice has not been restored yet. You remember that. This is this is about to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. So here here's the guy who receives this incredible vision. An angel visits him. This is not something that happens every day, even in the Old Testament or where we are now in the beginning of the New Testament. This was unusual. And in this vision, in this declaration, he's told, you're going to have a son. Now, we said that they're at least 60 years old. They're probably older than that. But the point is, is that they are humanly impossible, incapable of having a child. And he's told this, but he doubts it. And as a result, he loses his voice. And now he can't speak. But God has kept the promise. And now the son is born. And he's coming to the time where he has witnessed every other friend and relative practice come before, win faith to God, the sign of the covenant. And now it's his chance to be a part of this with his son. And he still can't speak. His heart must have been bursting with joy and thankfulness and gratitude. And the reason I point all this out is that this ought to be our heart's reaction when we experience a baptism. You know, when we witness a baptism, it is not just to see what is is happening to that child. We're called to consider our own baptism, to remember our own baptism. And so we ought to, like Zachariah must have felt, be filled with this incredible joy and thankfulness to what God has done. This is certainly how Zechariah would have felt. And in this moment, his lips are going to be loosened, and he's going to be able to express it. But you notice there's one minor thing that has to be solved first, and that's this issue of a name. And we're not told why the community gets to have a voice in this. It seems a little strange that the community would say we want him to be named after his father. There's not a lot of historical evidence written to suggest that this was the norm. It, the only exception to, to to this was when a father was uh, was famous or well known. And. A number of people pointed this out in my studies that Zachariah's notoriety from his experience in the temple is likely what prompted this. In other words, the community was well aware of what happened to Zachariah in the temple. In fact, if you remember, when he came out, they were all there. It says in Luke one twenty two, when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And so now, here they are in this moment, the son has been born, has been given to them, and the people are all there. And, and for this reason or some other reason, they want to suggest that he needs to be named Zachariah. They recognize that something remarkable has happened, both in the temple, but also just in the birth of the son in their old age. This is unusual. God is at work. God is with us. God is doing something. This isn't anything that we can explain. And so likely because of all that was happening now, the people thought that he should be named after his father. But Elizabeth says in verse 60, no, he shall be called John. And of course, because she was his mother, they all listened to to her and they went along with it, right? (laughs) No, they acted like, like Sarah or Elizabeth didn't even speak. They turn to, to and you can, you can see the fury for whatever reason. They're so excited. They forget that Zachariah is mute and not deaf because they begin making signs to him as if he can't hear. Zachariah can still hear. He just can't speak. And so they take on his mannerisms that they've witnessed him do in their fury to try and get him to agree with them over Elizabeth. And Zechariah requests his writing tablet, and he writes these words. His name is John. Emphatic, clear, succinct, God gave the boy his name. Not you, not me, not his mom. God gave the boy his name. And when this happened, it says in verse 63, they all wondered. We are so familiar with this story that we lose the wonder in what is happening here. This was a remarkable experience. Imagine witnessing something like all that has happened and knowing that God is doing something. What is he up to? Well, immediately his mouth was open and he began blessing the Lord. Praise came from his lips. And after he finished his song, verse 65 tells us, "...fear came on all their neighbors." And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then shall this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So there's this sense of awareness, there's this sense of excitement, of conviction, that it is God who is at work doing something. We don't know what. What is this child going to be? You see the anticipation uh, even in the question, what is this child going to be? But certainly, the conversations are only just beginning. This event or these events are going to be talked about for the next three decades, really, until John's ministry begins as he prepares the way of the Lord. So John is doing exactly what he was sent to do. We could say from his birth or from his conception, but we know it was actually before his birth that he started doing it. From the womb, John leapt for joy. He was doing what he was sent to do, to prepare to announce that the Messiah has come. And so let's now consider Zechariah's song itself. There are two clear sections here, verse 68 to 75 and then 76 to 79. The theme is the same throughout, but the theme is really emphasized in verse 68 to 75. Uh, where we see it's the salvation of God's people through sending the promised Messiah. That's that's really the theme of the overall song. And that theme continues in the second part, but it's in the second part that, that Zechariah turns his attention to his son and mentions the role that he is going to play uh, in preparing the way of the Lord. I want to remind you, in verse 67, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies. So this is not only a song of praise, uh, a doxology, but it is also a song that is prophetic. It is a song, uh, uh, he's serving as the mouthpiece of God in in saying or in singing this hymn. Now, if you look at the punctuation of the first section, verse 68 to 75, I'm not a grammar teacher. I can't tell you if this is a run-on sentence or not, but it's really long. There is no period until the end. It's one long sentence. And so I want to try and distill it down to its essence. This is what I've come up with. God has redeemed his people through the Messiah he has sent according to the covenant promises that were foretold that we might glorify him. I don't know how succinct that is. Let me say it again. God has redeemed his people through the Messiah he has sent according to the covenant promises that were foretold that we might glorify him. That doesn't capture everything, but I think that distills it a little bit down, a little bit more that we might get our our minds around it. You notice here that Zechariah is using the aorist tense or the past tense in the same way that Mary did. It's a, it's a common uh, uh, means of, of, of pointing us in prophetic utterances to the surety of what is going to come to pass. It's speaking of the future in the past tense, saying that what will happen is as sure as has already happened. So we can be confident in that. It's why the writer or the speaker uses this tense And the second part captures much of the same theme, as I mentioned, focusing then on John's role as the one who would prepare. Uh, We'll look at that more in a moment. But in the first half now, I want us to just run quickly through it. The first word sets the tone for the whole song. This is the word blessed. It's the one that gives us the, 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 the name of the song, Benedictus. Now, the word blessing in Mary's song spoke of God's favor. So it was the blessing of God upon Mary, the fruit of her womb, and those who would be saved. So it was was God's favor upon others. Here the word blessing is used as a pronouncement of praise. It is, again, when we sing praise God from whom all blessings flow. We call that the doxology, right? Or it's a doxology. And we are pronouncing not favor upon God, but we're singing his praise for what he has done for who he is. This is what Zechariah is doing. These are the very first words from his lips. And then in the second line in verse 68, we see that God has visited and redeemed his people. And again, for those of you who've been with us in our study of Genesis, you know we looked at this, right? The very ending of the book of Genesis, what were the last words on Joseph's lips? Surely God will visit you. And we know that the immediate fulfillment of that prophetic promise was the deliverance 400 years later of the Israelites from the Egyptians. But the ultimate fulfillment of that promise is what we see right now in the season of Advent, that God would come and visit himself, that he would put on flesh in the person of Jesus, that he would come and look after or care for his people. That's really the connotation of this particular word for visit. It's the same word Jesus used in Matthew 25, 36 when he said, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. It is uh, episkopos. It's the word that we get bishop or elder or overseer or pastor. It's the idea of a shepherd. That's the visiting term here, that God cares for his people as a shepherd. His covenant people, mean they are his treasure. They mean so much to him. And he will come. He has come now and visited them to shepherd them and care for them. In verse 69, we see he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The image of a horn of an animal speaks to the animal's power. If you've ever seen those YouTube videos of the two rams that butt heads, you know that it's a very powerful thing to witness. Rather yet, if you've ever been in the unfortunate experience of being on the business end uh, of a goat or a ram with horns, you know how much power is there. Um, I have, and I can tell you, it's not pleasant. They were little goats too. You wouldn't think that they had that much power, but if you're in their way and they want to let you know, they have no problem doing so with their horns. It's the business end. That's what that's what the uh, Zechariah is saying here: that God, in His Messiah, is sending His power, His power to save His people. It's in the line of David. Not the line of Levi. What was John's line? John the Baptist's line? Well, his father was a priest, wasn't he? So he's in the line of Levi. Here, this is speaking of the one who was born in the line of David. This is pointing us to the Messiah. There's several prophecies that this refers back to. I mentioned one, Psalm 132, 17. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed which a Messiah is also anointed one. So this is pointing to the one who would come, who would be a horn, a sprout up for David. In verse 70, he, he, he focuses our attention even more on the prophecies of old that were foretold. The specifics of those prophecies is that God would save his people from their enemies to show mercy in remembrance of his holy covenant. He takes us all the way back to Abraham. For those who aren't normally with us, we just finished a, a series in Genesis. And so that's why I keep referring back with some familiarity to the book of Genesis uh, because we just finished it. And we know, looking at the life of Abraham, the promises that were foretold, they were, always, they were pointing us forward, pointing us forward, that promise of a Redeemer who would come. And now Zechariah takes and points us backward to see God has kept his promise. He did what he said he would do. And then in verse 75, the result of this great salvation is that we might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The phrase without fear is not saying that we wouldn't fear God. We know that to worship God is to fear God. Rather, that we wouldn't fear our enemies, that we would not live in fear, particularly of our greatest enemy, Satan. We don't have to be afraid of the evil one or his kingdom. Manifest in the earthly dominions. God has defeated Satan. He has defeated sin and death that we might live unto him. That we might, as the confession says, glorify God and enjoy him forever. In a sense, that would distill what Zechariah is saying here. That we might live in righteousness and holiness. That we might enjoy God, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Philip Ryken writes, to serve God is to glorify him in our worship and in everything else we do, leading holy lives. And this is the goal of our salvation. God wants to do something more with us than simply get us to heaven. His goal is for us to live for his glory. But to do this, we first have to be liberated from the selfishness of our sin. God's salvation is for our sanctification, and this always leads to service. So God has made us a kingdom of priests that we might serve him, live our lives in him, Uh, or or for him, to glorify him as we serve him and serve one another. And then in verse 76, this is where Zechariah moves into the next section. and He begins praising God for the son that was born to he and Elizabeth. You remember the angel told him that God has heard your prayers. So he and Elizabeth had prayed for a child, and now God has given them the child. And he says, John the Baptist will be the prophet of the Most High who will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. This refers back specifically to to at least two different prophecies. One we read this morning in Isaiah 40, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It's also in Malachi 3.1, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me. John has been appointed. This is his role. He will be the messenger, the one who will announce and proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That was his role. This is what Zechariah is pointing to. The Messiah is coming. That's John's, the John's task, to say he's coming, and he's doing this to save his people. How? By forgiving their sins according to the tender mercy of God. All of the people had their minds fixated on what kind of salvation. Political, that's what everybody was thinking about. Can we identify with that at all? <laughs> you know, we, we want salvation from, you know, in, in this world, in this sphere. We want, we want deliverance from whatever it is that impedes us in this life. But we have a bigger problem, our own sin. And God has sent his Messiah to save us by forgiving our sins according to his tender mercy. He then shifts his focus back to the theme of this visit of the Messiah with the language, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. I think the, the, the writer of o come, o come, Emmanuel captures that very well in that last verse. That this is, this is what it's going to look like. He's going to come as a bright light, a light like the sun called the sunrise. Uh, this is re- reference back to Malachi two. But you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. This is clearly pointing to God the Son coming in the flesh to bring salvation to all of us who sit in darkness. And what a beautiful picture this is for us who live surrounded by the shadow of death, ever reminded of the darkness of sin and death, that we know our Savior's light outshines all the gloom, all the despair, all the angst, all the hurt, and he leads us into the way of peace. And we long for that day of his return when we will know that peace face to face. Well, John will continue to grow in strength. He lived in the wilderness. We don't know when this started. Those details are left out. A number of uh, scholars suggest that his parents likely died when he was young, because of their old age, and so he took up with uh, those who lived in the wilderness. He lived a very unusual life. But John's purpose would come uh, specifically uh, in a number of years before, right before Jesus began his earthly ministry, and John would be the one calling people to repentance. All of us are sinners. We've all gone our own way. We've all gone astray. And we will not know the peace of God until we are rescued by the Savior who has come. It is David's horn of salvation, the powerful saving arm of God. The Messiah has come that we might not remain enchained in sin and death. He is the tender mercy of God in the flesh, having come according to the promise that God gave to our fathers. He has saved us from our sins, from all of our enemies and from that great enemy death that we might live unto him without fear and holiness and righteousness. And to that end, that living without fear and holiness and righteousness, he gives us strength along the way, doesn't he? He's given us his spirit, but he's also given us the means of grace that is before us today in the table a meal of sustaining grace whereby He leads us in His peace and fills us with great joy. Each of us comes to this table in the same way, at the same foothold. We, we, none of us has an advantage here. We all come according to God's mercy. We come by faith in Christ alone. We are all needy beggars. We have no merit upon which we can stand. Jesus paid it all for everyone who trusts in him. And so may we now, with hearts of thankfulness, full of anticipation, and filled with joy, prepare ourselves to feast on these elements that are before us. This is the tender mercy of God sent to us in the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider your mighty work in the sending of your son, and particularly in Zechariah's testimony of this incredible gift of a son, John the Baptist, to him. But not just that it was a gift of a son to he and Elizabeth, but that it was the one, the great prophet, who would prepare the way for the Lord. That the Savior was on the way. That he was coming to do all that you had promised. That he would fulfill every promise that was spoken to save us from our sins, to deliver us from our enemies. Lord, we thank you in this season of Advent as we remember and as we anticipate your return. Uh, Lord, would you fill our hearts with thankfulness and joy? And would you use this time now as we enter uh, this time of your supper, would you use it to equip us and to nourish us, to give us grace along the way? Lord, we commit our lives to you. We are dependent upon you. Our lives are in your hands. Would you cause us to trust you to not be filled with worry, but to live lives of holiness and righteousness as unto you, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.